Hi there, I'm Tom D'Antoni. World Cup Coffee and Tea at Northwest 18th and Gleason has been closed for over a week for renovations. By the time you hear this, it'll be open again, but while they were closed, I thought it would be a good idea to call upon OMN's national editor, Art Levine, and find out what's going on with him. He's in Washington, D.C., so we're Skyping this one. He hasn't been writing for us very much lately because he's been working on his new book, Mental Health Incorporated, How Corruption, Lax Oversight, and Failed Reforms Endanger Our Most Vulnerable Citizens. It's not a book about music. But there is a music and OMN connection. We'll start with that. But with art, you never quite know where things are going to go from there. We've been friends since 1970, so you know how that goes. I wish you were actually in the coffee shop with me right now because I haven't seen you for a long time. Although, Thank you. Although uh, during uh, um, uh, Twin Peaks The Return, we talked every week, at least once a week, <laughs> about Twin Peaks. Art. Yes, it was phenomenal. Yeah. It was a phenomenal show, and I've been reading every scrap of information from the opaque and ever evasive David Lynch, and still enjoying it. Um, I, and by the way, I am a uh, longtime member of the people of who do transcendental meditation, uh, and uh-huh. uh, I got it when it was cheaper to use. Uh, What's back it cost? I don't even want to know now, but I'll tell you a secret. It's really helpful. It provides deep bodily relaxation and reduces stress, which relates to uh, a factor in my book called Mental Health Incorporated, how you're, corruption you're, – you're, you're ahead. You're ahead. You've jumped ahead. We haven't, okay. we haven't gotten to the introduction to the book yet. Okay. So, uh, uh, listen, I'm, I, I was uh, thinking about this, and I remembered that um, – you were involved very heavily and 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 brain uh, painstakingly in the editing process of this book when i ran across a documentary and i went oh my god art has to write about this it was part of the northwest film center's uh, real real music festival and um and and i knew you were busy and but I, I didn't care because i wanted you to write this piece so bad and you did I did because it was a great film about the the young blues fanatics going down to Mississippi at the same time that other people who were trying to give a voice to African Americans through voter rights were also there. Yeah. And apparently, um, I, I don't recall the. I think they they disc- some of them like Dick Walker, Waterman and others discovered uh-huh. and John Fahey. Uh, Right, yeah. but the point is they discovered Sun House on the same day that like Schwerner, Ray, and Goodman were killed. Right, uh, right. And uh, I talked about the movie being so wonderful that uh, because it was in, uh, back when the, the, the Trump administration was merely a horrible nightmare yes. as opposed to its current daily insanity that makes even – David Lynch's number eight episode look like, uh, you know, uh, Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farms. Uh, 
and the uh, it was about and so it was so uh, so I said that I felt like crawling inside the film yeah. <laughs> and not leaving until the Trump administration was over. <laughs> kind kind of like that bug. Right, kind of like the bug that went into the mouth of the sleeping girl who did turn out to be uh, Laura Palmer's mother, right? That's that's right. We think so. We think so. We think so. Because nothing's ever confirmed. Nothing's ever confirmed. But Mark Frost gives gives away as many hints and explanations as he can, but I have to uh, <laughs> review his work further. Well, I will put up the link to your review of Two Trains Running on the page here. Okay. <laughs> and and by the way, if I, thank you so much once again for taking the time, time out in the middle of the night to write that piece. <laughs> right, right. I, I, I tend to deliver, I think, very high-quality work for no money but the prestige <laughs> of appearing in your... publication and occasionally getting free tickets by designating myself as I am the national (laughs) the national correspondent yeah editor whatever whatever you want to call it yes right of Oregon Music News did you score those Lucinda Williams tickets that way uh no I paid um, oh man paid for balcony seats and I'm going to see if I can you know reach out by cell phone to the press office to see if I can get better seats is that tonight that's tonight, and wow. and they bungled the marketing of it to such an extreme. I just thought, so I bought it from, assuming my tickets are not counterfeit, I bought it from <laughs> an off-label sell oh, website oh, man. that does appear to be legitimate. And <laughs> this, this is going to shock everybody, but essentially, so the prices were uh, base rate, official prices were like, $45 or something yeah. along those lines, base rate, which would be a lot more. And then they had an official verified – this is important for – this is a little tip. If there's a high-demand thing, you may be surprised uh, how you, cheap you can get. What happened is – so I ended up buying tickets at a base rate of $22 for the balcony in a 3000 Seat theater theater uh-huh. for show called the LSD tour yeah. of uh, Linda Lucinda Williams uh, uh, Steve Earle and and Dwight Yoakam uh-huh. and 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 it's at a casino so you think the prices are going to be out you know completely unattainable they are very high at the lower level but then it turns out I discovered an off-label resale thing where I thought, you know, that's normally where you have these really scalped high prices for high demand, but they pre-buy based on a guess about how the level of interest is, and they guessed wrong. Oh, jeez. So two days ago, the base rate for a ticket that I got at that same site for $22 had fallen to $11. (laughs) Jeez. Wow. It's close to papering the house in the balcony. Wow. If you go through the main site and you don't know how to use computers or buy tickets, you're you're going to go, oh, everything's sold out. Yeah, yeah everything's yeah. sold out because the resale house has snapped it up. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to a great show. I'm, um, um, that's where I'm going to be headed out You know, after this conversation we have. Yeah. Okay, so the other thing that's that – isn't this, isn't this the, the other connection to that – um, that review you did of the documentary was, didn't the research for this book take you to the Delta? 
It it took me to Mississippi. Yeah. Unfortunately, what happened in the Mississippi Delta, which is the second time I've been in Mississippi, it it was such a compelling story that I didn't have room to include it in this book. Wow. Uh, uh, yes, I went to Mississippi. It turns out, by happenstance, literally uh, at Freedom Summer, literally the time of the voter the time of freedom summer of the voter registration drive in mississippi which is also memorialized in that two trains running documentary i was at a celebration for it but i was there not for the celebration but to interview these families of people with mental illness uh their family members and how they're grappling with the fact that their sons are being maltreated in jail yeah. And they couldn't get treatment. And I had these very compelling interviews. And the and I was and to me the uh, the the people in Mississippi, uh, in terms of dealing with the mental health system, were like people uh, who were sharecroppers on farms in the early '60s who were completely scared to assert their rights. Yeah. So uh, yeah. this this Mississippi is notoriously bad on so many fronts, yeah. but in mental health care it's very bad. And so um, I have these very compelling stories that d did not make it into the book because they required lots of additional reporting that. Yeah. Uh -huh. I had to do. Uh, similarly, I learned about abuses at a um, – I cover – one of the topics I cover in the book is abusive uh, youth residential treatment programs, and I discovered a program uh, called um, Chamberlain in Massachusetts that does um, kind of maltreats kids with learning disabilities – and since I already had a story about a, oh, a, a school yeah. uh, that maltreats people with learning disabilities by allowing rapes and assaults on the college on the on the campus site, allegedly, I have to add, since yes. it's never proven in court. But I fed the information. I learned about it from a, a woman whose son was. Uh, sort of taken away from her by wrong-headed family courts and sent there to uh, that facility after being at another abusive youth facility sent there by the warring father um, in Utah, which is, another, is kind of ground zero for youth torture, is Utah. That's one of the topics of my book okay let's 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 just back up one second the book is called mental health comma incorporated inc period how corruption lacks oversight and failed reforms endanger our most vulnerable citizens you know this book would be if if we weren't in the current political situation we're in this book would be a, a blockbuster Right. It's 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 been difficult getting attention. I did get positive reviews in the trade press um and uh, Publishers Weekly liked it. Um, uh, also, I got a nice write-up in Vice. Kirkus liked it. Mm -hmm. uh, I was interviewed by the former head of the American Psychiatric Association um, and the current chair of the uh, uh, of the Columbia University Psychiatry Department and C-SPAN. But it didn't get any newspaper reviews. So uh, I, I am still. Um, kind of trying to bring attention to it. You're right. It's competing against other things. The one element of my book and uh, recent articles in Newsweek that were one of which was on the cover and another that's coming out 
I hope in the next week or so at Huffington Post has to do with the opioid crisis and how we're mishandling it mm-hmm. um, and offer some fresh insights that generally aren't in the mainstream media regarding opioids, particularly the issue of prescription drugs in which they're still demonizing prescription drugs today as a key factor in all of those total drug overdose deaths, uh, which is 64,000 total drug overdose deaths. Actually, Oregon has had a decline, but it's one of the few states that's had a decline. Everybody else. We have legal pot. Right. And (laughs) yes, I think you are, because I was looking at this article by Oregon Public Radio saying, why is it that, uh, that, why is it that there's less opioid overdoses and their answers were oh we're tougher and more careful on prescriptions that's probably not the answer because what's happened is is that there's been a very striking downturn across the united states in prescription opioid prescribing which was a factor in leading to uh uh, some people becoming addicted and leading to an increase in abuse in the early days, but that's not what's happening now, and we're fighting the last war. So, so guess what? Of the 64,000 fatal overdose deaths a year, less than 15% involve prescription drugs in the person's system. You wouldn't know that from reading anything. Nothing. You wouldn't have any idea that it's that little of a role, and 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 that and we have this misguided policy that I'm writing about how we're cracking down on prescribing as a simple dumb solution for the opioid crisis when the it's been on the downturn about 20 percent downturn since 2010 and and we have an increase in opioid deaths like at 20% a year driven by illegal fentanyl which isn't really even fentanyl patches it's meaning people are dumping fentanyl into any kind of fake counterfeit pill product and lacing heroin and heroin so we're having skyrocketing opioid deaths and we're uh, we're depriving uh, patients who are functioning okay on opioids with chronic pain and we're taking it away quickly under this misguided interpretation of centers for disease control guidelines about how to deal with opioids and chronic pain it's it so that is that's bad enough and i have i'm going to be i'm introducing data that has not been seen elsewhere um most of it has not been seen elsewhere uh, indicating just how significant the cutbacks in opioids are in causing suicides. Um, in, in a state that has done the best single analysis of this issue, which is Montana, because Montana has the highest rate of suicide in the country, and, they, and they've been that way for about 15 years, their legislature said, we're going to look at the uh, medical records of every single person who committed suicide. So, you're going to, so they uh, instructed county coroners to really get the medical records and try to dig into the full background. So 35% 
of all people in Montana, obviously a sparse state, so the numbers aren't going to be huge, uh, but it's the rate is the highest in the country by far. 35% is chronic pain-related, and yet there's no acknowledgement by the federal government that – Yanking away opioids from people who are using them appropriately and are, have no history of substance abuse is contributing to an upswing in suicides, which is alarming the public health officials. So that would be one thing that's bad. But now Jeff Sessions – so here's the problem. We now have Jeff Sessions and his Justice Department is doing something so nutty that – it, it would be a news story if it wasn't for the fact that he's monstrously ripping babies from mother's arms and sticking teenagers in tents where they can die from heat exposure and leaving toddlers open to being raped and abused in detention centers and traumatizing for the life. If this other thing, which is their crackdown on legitimate addiction treatment – that involves uh, medications that have some opioids in it. That would that issue that I'm talking about would be uh, would of course be a news story. But you can't compete in this news environment where there's a monstrous, shocking, unheard of event every 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. It it, it it's yeah. a completely different news environment. Right. I I really wish. I, I'm going to go back and, uh, you know, actually, I, everyone says this is – I'm not analogizing Trump to Hitler, but I am very interested in how democracies fail, which is the title of a great new book, and how authoritarian um, governments worm their way into democratic systems and then destroy them. And that's what's obviously happening now. So the the, the other crazy thing that's happening under Jeff Sessions, which normally would be news. So if, if this exact – which is this. They're now – FBI is now raiding the offices of legitimate addiction treatment d doctors um, – who are giving what's known as Suboxone, which is an opioid-based medication along with methadone. Um, uh, that's another one of these products that helps reduce um, dangerous opioid cravings and cuts overdose fatalities in half at least, if not 75%. So a drug that is championed by the National Institute of Drug Abuse and can cut overdose deaths up to 75% and is very hard to obtain now because you have to have a, a, a waiver that allows you to prescribe to up to 100 patients. It used to be 30. They're now raiding the offices of the former president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So if the president, uh, if the president of the Addiction Society of Medicine is being raided by the FDA for prescribing drugs recommended by the National Institute of Drug Abuse um, as essential for – as like a treatment of choice for dealing with opioid addiction, then how crazy are we going? And it turns out the policy – based on the Bible quoting, you know, Jeff Sessions, is all opioids for all people 
in all circumstances are bad and must be stopped immediately. What, what book of so, the Bible is that in? <laughs> yes, that it's in the same one that says, uh, "Thou shalt uh, always." Cause the little children to suffer yes. <laughs> and take thine baby from the breast of thine mother. It's right there in Isaiah. I don't know why everybody else is missing it because cause, cause, cause Jeff Sessions has seen it. You know, it sounds like something that uh, – have you read Under Tiberius by, by, by Nick Tachis? No, you've read more Nick Tachis than most people I know. Well, so tell me about it. It's this. It's it's you know, it's the whole the, the the premise of the book is that well, one of uh, Emperor the, uh, Tiberius's speechwriters, his main speechwriter, right, gets right. gets sent to Palestine after after Tiberius is 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 kicked out of power, and uh, is is sent to to, to Palestine. To, to work, right, uh, and ostensibly to write speeches for Pontius Pilate, but no, nah, he didn't do that. He hooked up with this grifter, and um, uh, and and who has who was very charismatic, and turned out, and, and wrote speeches for him. Turned out he was Jesus. <laughs> wow! <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's a great book. It's completely blasphemous, and but it sounds like uh, it, it, it the whole the whole sessions. Uh, Pence thing sounds just like something that Tachis would have thought of. Right. If we so much of this administration's, and so I basically had a uh, article uh, a while ago in Alternet that kind of put everything together, where everybody's debating whether or not the president is mentally ill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and and. And what I like is a guy I'm friendly with, with whom I, in fact, co-authored an article for Huffington Post about the role of the big pharma industry in helping create the opioid crisis. Yeah. And I'm very critical of, of big pharma in my book. Uh, he's the one who actually developed the narcissistic personality profile, okay, the actual psychiatrist. <laughs> and he was the former chairman of the... APA's diagnostic panel. Yeah. He, he has such great authority. He says, no, he doesn't qualify under the clinical symptoms because his self-regard is not harming him personally. Oh. It's not causing any damage. In other words, he's, he's, he's basically uh, going to – I love this when this happens in the mental health field where they go, uh, diagnostic categories don't work. He is evil. This is Dr. Wow. Al Francis. In other words, he's trying to let people know that what he's doing is destroying America. Right. He's completely evil. Yeah. He's driven by greed and gratitude his impulse, but he is not a narcissist by any standard <laughs> definition. Now, there, there, it remains the possibility that you know he could be considered a sociopath, depending on how you. He does have a lack of empathy, which is a factor in sociopathy, and but but there's this fool's gold out there among the uh, liberals in the mental health field. And there's books about it where under the 25th Amendment, somehow members of the cabinet will consider the f fact that he's unfit to carry out his duties and, and, and therefore this should be a remedy to take him out of office because he's mentally ill. You know, first of all, that wouldn't happen politically now that the entire – 
Right. GOP is under the thrall of Je- of, of Trump, right. but but it's also kind of fool's gold, and that's um, I am worried. It, it is now a common trope among liberal left, of which I'm one, is to emphasize impeachment as a central driving factor nah. in uh-uh. in the uh, in the 2018 elections, and I think that's I a bad idea. I, I don't believe that. that. I don't believe that. Yeah, it's 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 that's a bad way to go. You know, the only thing that's the the only hope that we have is that um the, is that uh, the Democrats take uh, take the House. That's the, the only, only hope. The only hope. <laughs> right, and but here's the point: is I I another part of my journalistic career is I was an early early uh. uh uh, Cassandra on the issue of voting suppression. I was oh, writing I about yeah. suppression in 2006, right. and now it's escalated with the gutting of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, gerrymandering is still commonplace and, and been accelerated, right. and the vote suppression issue is going to get even worse because uh, thanks to Trump and his Supreme Court majority, yep. they okayed Ohio's purging of voter rolls. Right. Right. And so basically, there's and then there's something called a cross check where anybody named Juan Gonzalez, born right. in the same yeah. year, yeah. Yeah. in yeah. any part of America, is yeah. driven off the rolls. Uh, the whole thing is so. There's no question that if there was no gerrymandering, no voter ID, vote suppression, which is now. It's now it uh, ID of some kind is required in about 21 states, and it's very strict in several states. Um, uh, and and then the massive purging and and uh, Greg Palace does a lot of work on that. And yeah. for those who are concerned about the v- vote, the the person to listen to and read regularly is uh, broadcaster Brad Friedman, who's uh-huh. on KPFW and has we a pod- we had him on our blog our blog talk radio show. Yes, and he's still very much on top of it. And I still remember talking to Brad when I was writing for 2008 American Prospect with a headline that was given by my editor, Harold Meyerson, that is still resonates and was used called The Republican War in Voting. And that piece was about the efforts of ACORN to register people, and then ACORN got smeared, and then all the left abandoned ACORN until right. they realized – Oh wait a minute! If yeah. we if we let them get smeared, it could wipe us out, and then they try to stand in, uh, defend them. But I I had this illustrates the fecklessness of the left. Right. It, it is to me basically um, Republicans when it comes to politics and messaging, they're like they're like Steph Curry. Or LeBron, okay? Uh-huh. Their their skill set at smearing, framing, messaging, communicating, and motivating their troops is like Steph and LeBron at their best, and the Democrats are like a high school pickup team, okay? <laughs> I this is a story that's kind of important because it illustrates. So I developed an article that was part of my article and then follow-ups in which. I identified a well, during this uh, there were efforts to require, which are now common in some states like Arizona, where 
you had to have a vital registration birth certificate that was government certified to vote and register in an election, okay? A birth certificate from a government agency. I did not have – I found out myself that I, Arlene, sophisticated upper-middle-class writer on vote suppression, did not have a valid birth certificate (laughs) under something known as real ID, and had it go back twice and write and navigate a website, a vital statistics branch of the New York City Department of Health, okay, like and pay $50 to get a government-certified birth certificate. There's a new law in town called Real ID that many states are adopting. That's a federal law, yeah. and it'll be in effect in 2018. So it is relevant, this law, to what I'm describing. So I found a 97-year-old white woman in Arizona who is living with her son who was born in a log cabin in Kentucky and didn't have a formal birth certificate. I remember that. And had voted in every single election since FDR and was looking forward to voting for Hillary Clinton in the primary in 2008, Mm -hmm. and Arizona wouldn't let her vote. Uh, Keith Olbermann did a commentary about it when he's on MSNBC. Raw Story picked it up. And so I then began contacting, you know, behind the scenes as an advocacy journalist, saying contacting – contacting uh, voting rights groups to see if this is something they wanted to play up. And I even um, – now I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but the well-known uh, the, the well-known uh, filmmaker who does these very quickie documentaries critical of the left, uh, you know, like yeah. Fox, this what, right. whatever his name is, he was interested in, in doing a piece and all he required was some buy-in by – uh, voting rights groups to like participate in publicity and maybe pay some minimal expenses for a local film crew and he would do the editing. I mean, he was ready to go to do like a documentary or a web ad about it, okay? They, uh, nobody was interested. They didn't feel it was worth their time, okay? <laughs> and And when I told this to Brad, he said, what do you think they are, Republicans? <laughs> <laughs> In other words, it's it's just yeah. the, uh, the still, ability- still with all of that in mind. Yes. The only hope is to is to flip one of the houses of Congress. Oh, yeah. The only with hope all, is with, with all of that in mind. That's the only hope. That's right. And that's why I am not. I did a piece that is extremely prescient that ran in the Huffington Post that appeared on the day of the 2016 election, uh-huh. which was, as of then, it was still the majority, overwhelming majority view that Hillary would win, okay? Right. Yes. I put together, drawing on my knowledge of vote suppression, messaging, a lot of – I put together an article that's called The Unified Field Theory of Why Trump w- Could Win, Okay. I wrote that, you know, over that weekend and from research I'd been gathering, and I was correct. It turns out that me, Brad, and uh, 
and uh, Digby, uh, Digby, the Darton, the, uh, mm-hmm. the the blogger, were among those who said everyone is really underestimating the force and appeal of Trump, combined with all the restrictions on voting. Yeah. Um, and I unfortunately was correct uh, about the, the the likelihood. You know, basically, I did better than uh, than these very uh, number crunching pollsters and everybody in the media and everybody in the FBI who thought, oh, right. well, it's okay that we could dirty her up because she's going to win anyway and. Why not buckle under the pressure of our uh, anti-Clinton uh, New York FBI office? You know. Well, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I, I wish I were. I wish I were a young man because then I would have more fight in me. But you know what? You know, there are all these anthems of, that that where they got written you know, during the the early part of the Me Too period, and all these women were. You know, it, it was wonderful. Right. It was great to hear. My anthem these days is things have changed. People yes. are people are crazy. Times are strange. I'm all I'm all uh, locked up and I'm way out of range. I used to care, but things have changed. Yes, and Betty Levette uh, does a wonderful version of that. She does, a, uh, she's the, does the best version of that. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we're both Betty Levette fans, yeah. and I, uh, you know, Tom, uh, you arranged for me to interview you, and you were expecting this kind of. Little mini review and oh, yeah. some sound bites, <laughs> and 30, I turned thirty-five hundred words or something, five thousand words. Or whatever, yeah. this, but I was so <laughs> blown away yeah. by yeah. her skills, yeah. and she had such a compelling story to tell. And I urge people who are interested in um, her life to read her book, yeah. um, uh, which opens with her being held outside. Of a window in Harlem, on by her ankles by a pimp. Okay, which illustrates how low her life had yeah. had sunk. And it's yeah. one of the great R&B autobiographies. The yeah. other is by another person I've interviewed in my career. It was the late Ruth Brown. She had a phenomenal oh, yeah. Yeah. interview, and she, um, you know, one of the things that. Um, Ruth Brown's book helped me understand in ways that other, you know, uh, interviews and films sometimes don't because was the reality of the everyday, nonstop, brutal apartheid racism that's now being carried out in shooting unarmed black people in the street willy nilly or in the back. But in her case, she she tells stories in that book. It's very much worth reading called, you know, Miss Rhythm or something. she would be when they would be touring the South as part of the Chitlin circuit, but she happened to be in a white bathroom. They would come in and drag her off the toilet with her her underwear around her knees. And at other times, the bus would be stopped and state police would point guns at them and tell them to start singing and dancing to prove that they were actually performers. Oh, Jesus. Jesus. So, in other words, the levels of racism. Yeah. You know, it, we know how bad it is. It has gotten better, but it's so institutionalized. And um, that's one of the things that's happening now is that Trump is um, accelerating the racist appeals in such an overt way that he's hoping to mobilize his base. So that's why he's not letting go of the anthem issue and the uh, right. and the ease. Right, right, right. Yeah. 
Well, listen, um, uh, uh, let's just back to your book for a minute. Um, give, uh, uh, tell the people just to briefly summarize what this, what, what, what this book is about. Well, the book is about challenging a lot of common notions that if we just had more uh, money spent on mental health and better access to mental health care, that much of our so problems will be solved. And the main theme of the book is that there is an epidemic of behavioral health malpractice that what amounts to a behavioral health malpractice epidemic of massive overdrugging, poor diagnosis, and dangerous care, and it's coming home to roost uh, in terms of the opioid addiction rate because it's about 50% of people with addiction have a serious mental illness, and about 50% of people with serious mental illness have some kind of substance abuse, often involving alcohol, but also with opioids. Mm -hmm. And the failed mental health system means that we are abandoning people from getting the kind of care that can make a difference. So one of the things that is a focus of my book is the overuse of antipsychotics for people who don't need them. While I'm uh, a centrist of medication and argue that uh, in conjunction with personalized therapy and smart therapies, um, there uh, it can make a huge difference with people like schizophrenia and other serious illnesses but at this point 90% of all kids who get antipsychotics get them for no good medical reasons for reasons that are unapproved by the FDA mm -hmm. but doctors are free to hand out all powerful Seroquel to a 3 month old baby who can't sleep mm. nothing to prevent them they have these mat. They you can't market it for giving it as a little baby pill to sleep, or market it as Zyprexa did for its antipsychotic, where it was five at five, little easy reminder at five p.m. Give your nursing home patients five milligrams of this, and you know, and some more at night. As a result of this marketing, 15,000 senior citizens a year in nursing homes die from antipsychotics. That's five 9-11s a year, and no one's doing anything meaningful. So I, I look at a number of things, and then I have a big focus on the VA, where I look at over-medication with antipsychotics, but also the role of the VA in helping fuel the opioid epidemic in this in part because of bribery essentially through grants from Purdue Pharma. They just literally earmarked in a chart that would be considered like the kind of chart that a mafia don would have in his pocket about who they're paying off in the judgeships. Mm -hmm. So they did the same thing. They have literally a chart with the dollar figures and the different health organizations are giving grants to that they then, you know, call as, you know, public service grant. So they gave $200,000 to the VA's pain management team who then uh, participated and created the first national influential pain and opioid guidelines through the Department of Veterans Affairs and Department of Defense, which concluded in 2003 that opioids were, quote, rarely addictive. <laughs> this is money well spent. Uh, <laughs> and on the other hand, the underreported story that I'm focusing in forthcoming Huffington Post piece is about the issue of these of the cutbacks on opioids 
uh, to legitimate chronic pain patients and how mm-hmm. that's increasing suicides. So it's it's those are the kinds of things that I'm uh, emphasizing, um, and I'd urge people to read it. They can also look at my if they type in Art Levine and Newsweek. They can see my cover story last year and related uh, sidebar I, articles. We'll we'll put the we'll put the links up because you're going to give them to me. Right. <laughs> so the cover story it was quite a thrill. It said, and it was very blunt. How the VA fueled the opioid crisis and killed thousands of veterans. Boy. There's no hedging here. It's like killed because their massive, heedless overmedication killed. Thousands. I have the data in it. Yeah. Even if the VA itself, uh, the researchers who work for the VA have put together some of the data. The VA itself is not announcing this from the shouting this from the rooftops, but they're also not paying attention to what they're doing now. While on the one hand, bemoaning 20 veterans committing suicide a day, they are paying almost no attention as an organization how their current policies are driving needlessly chronic pain patients to kill themselves in droves hmm. well when you get to, when you get uh, uh, James Fallows to, to, to write the blurb for your for your book he, he wrote an original and convincing case about the failures of the mental health industry complex when you get a James Fallows to write that about your book, it's that, that, that's a major thing. That is about as yes, good, Robert about Whitaker, as, about as good uh, as it gets. Yep, Robert Whitaker, author of uh, Mad in America and Anatomy of an Epidemic, and mm-hmm. also Maya Sozolovitz, who's a best-selling New York Times author of uh, of the um, book The Unbroken Brain about addiction, is also an endorser. So yeah. I definitely got some high-end people who. Uh, feel that it's an important book well you know uh it's not going away and nor is the problem right um, you know hopefully you know uh, the the, your the your day will come when this book will will really take hold i mean i was watching tv the day you were supposed to be on msnbc right Well, I will. I will tell that story briefly, and that can serve as kind of the difficulty of breaking through and how Donald Trump personally destroyed my book sales. Yes. So it's yes. not. It, <laughs> after the whole experience was over, I said, "Okay, sure, he's had a Muslim ban. Sure, he stoked racism. Sure, he's dooming millions to death through his cutbacks in Medicaid. Yes, but he's drawn the line here when he <laughs> he has created a situation where I can't get on MSNBC. So what happened is I was booked on a Friday to appear while I was on a book tour, kind of speaking at a local library that was under-publicized. Uh, and, then, and then I was going to go to a TV, and then they decided to cancel – then that Sunday, the the uh, and it broke on the online Saturday is the Washington Post had an article about how the DEA had been corrupted to go easy on enforcing opioids uh, limits with distributors. So I was very aware of that. So I spoke with the producer, and then we said, "Are you going to be able to talk about that?" I said, "Sure." And then I explained how it fits in with the themes of my book and uh-huh. so on. Mm-hmm. So. I- 
booked, and I go to the uh, local NBC affiliate. I'm dressed. I have my suit pressed. You need to understand I'm like running around crazy getting my suit pressed and getting a haircut and doing all these things. So I go to friends. If you, if you knew Art Levine, you would have made you, – you, 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 that, that, would, that would have greater magnitude for you. Right. Go on. Yes. Right. So I, I am getting ready to go there, and then what happens is – is so I go to the studio. Everything's everything's running pretty smoothly. It's on. It's supposed to be in the afternoon with Katie uh, Turek, I believe. Tur, uh, Katie Tur, right? And so uh, the basically, I'm put into a studio where there's kind of remote camera being uh, uh, handled by someone off stage. I even have makeup. I have the thing in my ear. I'm sitting at the chair. I have a book on the table waiting for the red light to go on. So I'm there, and then the, I hear in the voice and the producer going, we're running a little late. Um, we're running a little late, but we'll get back to you. And then the person uh, <laughs> gets back to me and says, um, uh uh, well, I said, yeah, oh yeah. I said we're we're running late. The person said, and I said, okay. Well, I can make it a short segment. So, no, haven't they told you know? Haven't they told you the the president's press con con conference is running over, so we won't be able to have you on the air? That's oh, the first geez. I learned of it. Oh. And then oh. I'm sitting there with the clip wired up, and I'm. I'm looking around. I'm in the darkened room all by myself oh, with the auto robo camera in front of me. And I'm going, hey, fellas, anybody come in here and take this mic off me? Oh, so geez, that geez, geez. so that that was my near brush with fame on MSNBC. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping there's going to be That's some additional terrible. publicity around terrible. this uh, Huffington Post story. But that yeah. – but, that that illustrates that illustrates the difficulty of anybody who has nothing, who doesn't have something that is that can top the daily horror right. news, right. getting all oxygen of all stories right. across the country is being swallowed up yeah. by the monstrous events of this administration. Right. If only you were Michael Avenatti. Right. <laughs> if only I was Michael. I should get him. <laughs> to somehow figure out if I get it, if I get him or Gloria Allred to handle some kind of lawsuit, I kick up, I'd be fine. <laughs> well, all right, uh, Art. Uh, you know, best of luck with this book. Um, uh, and if you want to write something about Lu uh, Lucinda Williams, uh, feel free. <laughs> um, okay. Well, th thank you so much. It's great to have have you ask me these questions, highlight the book, and and feature me as a guest. Okay. Talk to you soon. No doubt. Okay, thanks. Bye.